I'm Sharna Bobi, and this is a series about the stories of art makers, curators, and influencers who inspire thoughtful perspectives on the world around us. I'm passionate about how art can stimulate open-minded conversation, and I hope these episodes challenge you to see the world in new ways. Now, before we start, subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. And if you love this podcast, rate and leave a comment. Simone Njami is a legend in my books, or as I put it simply, a curator extraordinaire. He's a writer, curator, lecturer, and art critic. Njami is the co-founder of Revue Noir, which is a journal of contemporary African art. He's also made history by co-curating the first African pavilion at the 52nd Venice Biennial, and also the first African art fair in Johannesburg in 2008. He's also curated multiple biennials in Dakar, Rwanda, Douala, and Lumumbashi. I caught up with Simon during the 154 African Art Fair in London, and we sat down to chat one Saturday morning to talk about his journey as a curator and his passion for the future of art, curators, and artists in Africa. The purpose of the series is to explore the stories of artists and curators. Um, from a perspective of them being people who evolve and who change, and through that their work also evolves and, and, and changes. Um, and so I like to talk to artists about you know, how they began, uh, the, the moments in their lives that changed their perspectives, um, how they figure out um, the you know, dynamics of materials, of uh, the message they want to share in their work, and you know, their overall um, you know, vision. And I think for this conversation, for someone who's had a lifetime of dedication to art and to literature, um, it would be really interesting to hear your perspectives as well on, on, um, on your own journey um, in the arts. I know you started as an author, right? You've... I don't remember. I think I started as a, as a lawyer. It's true that I published uh, novels before I mm -hmm. completed my bar. So. So I started as a as a novelist. Mm -hmm. To start is a, a strange way to put it because mm -hmm. I was twenty three and I was starting nothing. I was just being a novelist and I was continuing to finish my my studies and I was doing things. But uh, one thing I was sure of was that I didn't want to become a, a specialist of anything. Didn't want to be bored. Mm -hmm. I knew when I passed the bar that I would not be a lawyer. When I started to teach, I knew that I would not teach forever. Uh, when I founded a magazine, I knew it would not be forever, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So when you, were, when you passed the bar, what was it that made you realize that you would not be a lawyer forever? Well, I knew it from the very beginning. I, I got to open a little a little page, a little parenthesis of intimacy. Uh, when I was a kid, my father, who was a loudspeaker, would just pick up his mind, uh, would say anything he thought about the situation in the world, and particularly in Africa, and particularly in Cameroon. And then one day he was put in jail. And 
uh, what I wanted to do back then was philosophy, literature, etc. But I decided to add um, laws so that I could defend all those who needed to be defended because I found it unbearable that somebody would be put in jail simply because he was telling the truth. So uh, while I was doing that, I used to be a kind of a stupid kid. I wanted to defend the orphan and the widow. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was doing my uh, my internship, as this lawyer who told me, "Well, young man, I've seen you. I've seen you evolving." And in which bar and which restaurant you're going, and see the way you're dressed. Are you sure you want to defend the widow and the orphan because <laughs> you'll be starving? And uh, back to the days, I wasn't defending the, the widow and the orphan, I was defending big companies, which was. Uh, so the thing was, you work with big company, which is morally against your mm-hmm. whatever philosophy and you make a decent living, or you work for the widow and the orphan, and uh, you live in a shop somewhere, and you, you eat dry bread every month. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so from there, um, but you, you wrote some novels, and you also wrote the biographies of... Um... No, I, I wrote novels before the bar. I, I was, actually, it was the same year. I was, I was 23 when, uh, when I published my first novel. That's really young to publish a novel. Well, I passed the bar at the same age. And, uh, well, the bar was nothing. I was interested in uh, in doing nothing serious. Mm-hmm. And I had a contract in between my father was freed. I had a contract with my parents. As long as I would study, they considered that I was working and they would they would pay me, quote-unquote, for that. Oh, nice. Uh, so it was easier for me to spend a bit of time in uh, college than to work at McDonald's to pay my rent. So I did a couple of PhDs and Masters, so just, just uh, having nice time, since the rent was paid and the pocket money was was given, which, which allowed me to, to do a couple of things. In uh, 87, I did a festival yes. in Paris, yeah. And again, for stupid reasons, at that time I was a bit, uh, I'd say young and tender. Uh, back to the days, the National Front mm-hmm. reached 10% in France, which, which we found back then frightening. And I, I decided to do something, and uh, I didn't even know what I would be doing. But uh, when my first novel was out, I was invited and uh, a lot of medias, etc. And uh, one of them invited me with Daniel Mittal, who was then the first lady. Mm-hmm. And then when I discovered that I was just there, nice faced, uh, bright African uh, kid, who was just there to, to put a, more, a bit more light on uh, the first lady, mm-hmm. so the guy asked me, uh, what do you think of her work? she was running a foundation, I said, I said, well, I don't care. I think <laughs> she's doing whatever she, she feels like doing, but uh, what I'm interested in, I said then, was to make people think. Mm-hmm. I don't care about giving them food, I'd rather help them to think how to produce their food. And that was the last thing I said in this uh, program, because I was not given the microphone anymore. <laughs> 
But uh, strangely enough, at the end, um, Daniel came to me and said, so what would you do? I said, oh, I have plenty of ideas. And she said, well, send me one of them. Of course, I had no idea, I had no clue, so I went back and I started to work and I uh, called my mom, my personal advisor. Mm -hmm. I said, you see, mom, there's people, she's like, send me something, because she, she was just saying that for the sake of it. She doesn't care, blah, blah, blah. My mom said, well, you didn't ask her for anything. She asked you to send a project. Send a project. If she doesn't reply, then you know she didn't. So I sent the project and she replied. And the project was called Ethnic Color. Mm -hmm. It was very simple, that's why I'm saying how naive I was. It was like, no matter where you come from, you produce things and nobody can tell who is the painter who did that, who is the writer who did that, who is the filmmaker who did that. It was a whole um, multidisciplinary festival, music, uh, an exhibition, we produced a book, a uh, movie, there was a night, uh, white night of movies. I brought some African cooks, African chefs at the Garda Espace. Yeah. So, uh, so it was kind of funny. After that I decided that I didn't want to have anything to do with this kind of organization anymore. Mm -hmm. I was exhausted and worn down. But uh, while I was doing that, I met, um, I commissioned a paper to an architect who, who became a friend. And then we became a friend and we're like, well, what, what are we going to do? And, um, and it's funny, I don't know about you, mm -hmm. but I discovered that I was African quite late. Mm. And, uh, which means it was a decision, a political decision, because I, I didn't care about being this guy, I was this student from the Sorbonne, I was this guy who was having his string bags, mm -hmm. etc. Africa was not um, a question. My family, my father, my mother, my grandfather, was oversized. Uh, but then in this fancy world I was living, one day somebody told me, uh, we're having this conversation because I was writing newspapers on art, etc. Somebody told me, such a pity there's nothing coming from Africa. Mm. Then what do you mean? I said, you know what I mean. And I realized that he was not talking to me as an African. Mm. He was talking to me as a Parisian, as an old friend. That I didn't mm. say, well, you're insulting me. I said, no, mm. we're not talking about you, we're talking about mm. Africa. And um, I think this is how we, we started Revenoir. Mm, wow. Uh, because there's one thing I didn't want people who are living around me to think that I was a kind of a maverick. Mm -hmm. I said, no, I have nothing special. There's plenty of uh, young, I was young, then people like me out there. And I'm going to show you. So this is how I started just to, to, to show my notion of contemporaneity. How did you facilitate the Revenoir? Because, you know, with so many in-depth stories from across the continent, how did you even organize all of that together in each edition? Well, you just do it. Well, first of all, all my author rights went in the magazine at mm -hmm. the beginning. My friends uh, put one or two flats. Mm -hmm. But again, we wanted to tell the story from within and back to the days. I, I didn't know much physically about Africa. I got a new Cameroon. 
I know how to speak myself because I was sent there every summer. I was a, a mission for my grandparents. Speak nothing but Bassa. No French, no German, no Italian, nothing. So I, I was rooted. I, I, I knew nothing else. So we started to travel. We would go one or two or three times in the country, mm -hmm. uh, meet people, see who could write, see who were the, the writers, the musicians, etc., and come back and come back and make an issue. And the other thing was, uh, still is, is that um, uh, we were not interested in Africa. We were interested in the countries mm -hmm. that made Africa. Mm -hmm. And we thought that it was important for, for the Africans and for the world to know that there's a country named Nigeria that has nothing to do with have commonality. But so it, it was very important for me to tell to the world and to tell to the so-called Africans that they, their countries and those countries, well, were designed in Berlin, but whatever, they exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was about time for people in and outside of Africa to consider those uh, geographic spaces that uh, for the better or the worse, are constructing uh, something unique. Mm -hmm. Again, no matter the commonality between Ghana, Benin, and, and Nigeria, they're different countries uh, with different histories, even if they're some common stuff. So it was important for us to, to work country by country. Amazing. So you've always been ahead of your years, I mean, in terms of your accomplishments and Saying I've always uh, I hate boredom. I like to do things and to move. You know? Instead of talking, action. Then when it's done, you you start another chapter. So after um, so you did Revenoir, yes. and then you've also curated um, the fair, the first fair in uh, Johannesburg, yes. and the first African Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. Yes. Um, I plead guilty. <laughs> you feel guilty. Um, how have your um, your objectives in putting together these shows changed? I know you said when you started you wanted to give more visibility to what we define as African art. Yeah, I, I became less uh, a visibility guy. Yeah. Um, I became, a, I say, an analyst. Mm -hmm. Wanted to understand how it worked. I didn't want anymore to show that uh, Africa was able to produce something that, that was done. In 91, there was not a single African in, in Venice or in Castle or whatever. A couple of years later, nobody can even imagine doing a, a major show without including uh, an African. So that issue was, was dealt with. But now I wanted to, to find out what what makes uh, Cameroonian or Nigerian uh, and what does it bring to contemporary art, to the contemporary art discourse? Does it bring something? Is it just the same uh, mechanism uh, than a German or a, a Swedish? So these are the things I, I wanted to explore and uh, to maybe start to write an art history that would be not country, not parallel, but that would be an art history of, uh, of Africa to, to find out what are the links, if there are links, and uh, try to find out what kind of history is there. In 2000, I, I did a show that was called uh, El Tiempo de Africa, mm -hmm. and uh, the first piece was carved in 1900. 
and the last one was uh, produced in 2000. I was trying to to make bridges to understand that, uh, or to, to ask myself, was there a relationship between the mask produced in 1900 and the painting or the installation produced in uh, in 2000? But I think that these these are these are the important things now is to create uh, uh, some uh, some material, some references okay. uh, to fill the libraries with all the books, mm -hmm. uh, so that. Uh, there will be a voice, uh, I don't like that uh, mm. voice story, but at least I would like stories to be told by those who who are living those stories, instead of being told by people to tell. I think that this is something important for, for certain people, certain region, to be able to articulate why they're doing what they're doing, and, uh, and to do it in their own terms, because if we really want uh, the world to be global in a good sense of it, it means that everybody has to come to the welcome table and to bring something. Mm -hmm. In order to bring something, you need to define what is it that you want to bring according to which conditions, instead of just uh, doing what you're told to do or what you think. Mm -hmm. uh, is fashionable because this is how they do it in New York or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's just a reversing and to, instead of being just an importer, to be exporter every now and then. So this is basically what I've been busy with uh, in the, the last years. And there was something funny since you mentioned uh, the first Johannesburg Art Fair. Mm -hmm. uh, the galleries were really, really unhappy. Really? Yes. And I want them to be unhappy. Uh, because right in the middle of the space, there was a huge black box. Yes. That was almost occupying the entire space. And the galleries were pushed onto the walls. Oh. And in those black boxes, there were artists without gallery. Oh. And outside, there were the galleries. So they were like, well, we pay this amount of money, and we're not even visible. So yes. I want you to be vis visible. What matters is uh, the artist, not you. Mm -hmm. Because uh, so it was conceived as if those huge boxes were the studio, mm -hmm. and uh, the galleries were invited to visit the studio and eventually to to take to pick one or two artists. Mm -hmm. So well, um, I'm always interested in that that uh, dancing the way people think a dance yeah. should be danced. Write another rhythm. So you're not afraid to speak what you speak your mind, uh, even if it makes people unhappy or. I mean, uh, I, I told you my, my father was put in jail for two years. Yeah. Deprived of his passport for five years. I don't know what can happen to me. <laughs> if I tell to Gary's that he's stupid, what can happen to me? Yeah. He will stop sending me his catalogs or what? <laughs> that that would be it. Um, so, as someone who's played a pioneering role in um, you know, establishing platforms for the telling of stories of artists from across the continent, um, when you think about the next, like the next stage or the next era or the next moments in in our part of the world, in terms of Af what we define as African art, I struggle with the term myself. Mm -hmm. But what we define as it, uh, what what would you like to see? What do you think we need to do next? Um, I think we, 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 we need to fulfill the book. Uh, <laughs> I think that if ever we produce something, 
will be seen when we get gone. Mm. And I'm very happy that I'm still around and uh, there's a couple of youngsters I've met uh, along the years. And those youngsters are becoming uh, players. I mean, I met Koyu and she didn't even know she wanted to do anything with art. I met Elvira when she was struggling about what to study, um, and, and so on and so forth. And those people are now becoming uh, uh, key characters in the game. And I think that contrary to... Anyway, they are living in a place now where uh, the discourse is different. They have material, they have food, food that was produced by those who came before. And there's a couple of struggles that have been made. Now they have to, to push forward. And the, 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 the space or the debate is not anymore. Does it exist? The debate is not anymore. Da, da, da. The debate is uh, how kind of, uh, what kind of tools are you going to build? You have those people and you have the kids. It is said that Africa is the youngest continent in the world. And uh, what is done for this youth is appalling because it's nothing. So this is why uh, I created some uh, master classes for photographers. This is why with the Moleskine Foundation I created a format of uh, critical thinking. Um, because, again, and I haven't changed that much. Uh, when I was telling to Daniel Mitterrand when I was 23, I'm not interested in giving food to people, I'm interested in giving them the mean to think of the way to produce their food. I think I'm still there. Yeah. And uh, what I'm interested in, in trying with this younger generation, I'm not talking about uh, you and Code and already grown up people, yeah. but with the kids, is precisely to to kind of develop this, this critical thinking so that when they say I, it's not their grandfather talking, it's not their president talking, it's themselves talking. But in order to be able to say I and to formulate it properly, you need a couple of tools. So this is why I'm, I'm, I'm still busy there. And I think that I'm going to be more and more busy with the, the youth, with the uh, under 30 than with the others because now there's a bunch of people who can make shows and whether they're good or not is not a problem, but there's a, a lot of people out there who are able to, to produce shows and to have a bit of budget given to them. But uh, I'm busy with the next step, and as I told you, I have no time to waste. So while they're dealing, wrapping up uh, this step, we're, we're working on, on the next one, which is how to transform um, those young people who are between 20 and 30, how to transform them into active uh, uh, players in the transformation of their countries, of their continents, etc. Uh, I have a young president in the country uh, of which my parents originated. This young president, who's 85 or 86, is running for another mandate, <laughs> seven years. So wow. hopefully he'll die in between. Um, no, but the thing is that he's dead already. He's a dead man walking, yeah. metaphorically, I mean. And what is interesting is what is coming next. Yeah. And uh, what is coming next should be ready yeah. uh, for the challenges to come because uh, the country was still frozen for 
for 60 years. Mm -hmm. So I hope that the next generation will be able to, to uplift on this. So when you talk about the youngsters, do you think that... I, I'll consider myself a youngster. I'm if you're under 30, <laughs> um, not you're finished. <laughs> so, well, yes, I do. So um, do you think we should be focusing more on establishing infrastructure on the continent, or should we be focusing more on integrating, or should it be both? Who cares about integrating? Uh, once upon a time, people were fighting with notion of a center and periphery. Mm -hmm. I never consider myself as any periphery. So even when those people, the post-whatever people are dealing with those issues, they were assuming a weakness position. And um, I'm not interested in integrating. Well, every now and then I'm interested in helping Europe, being less stupid. <laughs> but uh, simply because I live in Europe and that uh, to live in a less stupid space is better than to live in a completely stupid space. And uh, it's not even a matter of infrastructure. I think that all goes down to power. We need to empower, but not like the feminists who say we need to empower female women. We need to empower our people, that's a strange expression, in order for them to be able to dictate their own future. So empowering means uh, to, to have uh, uh, smarter billionaires, because then they can do things uh, to have we always have had voices. I mean, to have voices that are heard. Everybody has a voice, but then if you have a tiny voice where even in your village nobody hears you, I mean, we have to be influential, we have to be able to dictate our own future. I mean, things are infrastructure, um, they will come later. But you don't build an infrastructure in the middle of a desert. Uh, you need a plan. You need I mean, you don't start an exhibition by hanging things. You write a concept, you check the space, you design the space. I think that there's no design for the moment in, in Africa. So we have to work on the design before we decide if we need infrastructures and what kind of infrastructures. Great. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me. It was my pleasure. Yes, we'll be recording that. Okay, it's great time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sharna Bovey, and you've been listening to In Studio, the podcast. If you love this episode, remember to leave us a comment and tell us how you liked it. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. We've got some wonderful treats over at In Studio with SO for gifts or for purchase, including our official t-shirts, iPhone cases, and posters as well as original blog posts you'll only find on our website. If you'd like to find us on social media, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at InStudio with SO. Join me next week for another episode of InStudio with Sharon Thank you for listening.